Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Sally Amoruso is back on the podcast today for a discussion with Dr. William Tierney, University Professor Emeritus and Founding Director of the Polias Center for Higher Education at the University of Southern California. Dr. Tierney has a new book out comprised of 49 short, engaging essays on the top challenges facing higher education. He offers his thoughts on the issues, but his real goal is always to give readers the background and tools they need to form their own opinions. He and Sally talk about the economic forces driving higher education today, as well as the political ones. Dr. Tierney states flat out that writing the book was in some ways a reaction to the damage, he says, has been caused to higher education by the Trump administration. So buckle your seatbelts and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. I'm Sally Amoruso, Chief Partner Officer with EAB, and today I am joined by Dr. Bill Tierney, who is University Professor Emeritus and Founding Director of USC's Pullius Center for Higher Ed. He is an expert on higher ed policy analysis, governance, administration, leadership and equity, as well as much more. He's been researching and writing on higher ed for several decades and, and recently published a book called Get Real, 49 Challenges Confronting Higher Ed. Welcome, Dr. Tierney. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start by just exploring why you felt compelled to write this book. You know, I started this before the pandemic, um, but I did start writing it with the Trump administration in place. Mm-hmm. And higher education is a complex social organization and it's a public organization. Yes. And I think there's a need for us to be clear with the public about the variety of different issues that we face. And really my focus in this book was to to try to get a sense of of laying out the issue and then asking the reader, what do you think? I'm I'm not agnostic, but I, I am agnostic in the sense that These are critical issues, and I want us as a public to think through them, and then we'll be able to make more informed decisions. And so tell me what you mean by a public institution or a public organization, because there are certainly private higher ed institutions. So you mean this in in a larger sense. Yeah, let me me talk about one issue right off the bat and go from there. Um, One major problem right now that we all agree on is that students graduate from college with too much debt. I've got a a young guy who I've mentored forever, and he's now teaching eighth grade math. He went to UCSB, Santa Barbara, and now he's getting his doctorate. But Mm -hmm. he's 30 years old and he's $70,000 in debt. Probably when he's done, he'll be $100,000 in debt. And, And that's merely because he's poor and had to pay tuition. I think the question is, do we as a a public, is that good for society that we've got people graduating with enormous amounts of debt? Um, One, is that fair to the individual? But two, for the larger society, is that really something that we think is acceptable? It's equivalent to me is, is, you know, if you think about healthcare, should people have to pay Mm -hmm. to get um, a a physical? And basically with Obamacare, what we said is 
No, that's not correct. Really what we want is we want as many people as possible to be healthy. Mm -hmm. I think in a knowledge society, we're at a point for myself that I think that um, college public institutions should largely be free. And if that's the case, before we go into, oh my God, we can't afford it, or how do we make this happen? We have to back up and say, do we want that or not? And I think it's fair for some people to, to read that chapter or those chapters and to say, absolutely not. I think everybody should have to pay his or her own way. I disagree with that, but I, first I want us to think through that, and then we can go from there. Well, that's a pretty large shift. And um, while funding for public institutions has been declining, um, they are still very mission focused on access and on elevating uh, their regions. And so I think that's aligned to what they're trying to achieve. But until the funding mechanisms change, and I think that's what you're getting at. You're, you're saying as a public, we need to say we're going to fund these institutions to do what they need to do to educate the citizenry. It's, it's only a large change today. I mean, when the first Governor Brown came in California and created the master plan, and let's just use 1960 as a benchmark, the reason that it was called fees and not tuition mm -hmm. is that if you wanted, if you as a citizen of California wanted to go to college, you could go and you didn't have to take out enormous loans. If you wanted extra things, then you would pay a fee. That was 1960. And we didn't say, oh my God, how, what is, you know, that's crazy. And the master plan in California was looked on as a model and is still looked on as a model throughout the world. Sure, but isn't when you're talking about your um, student whom you mentor and uh, the fact that that student will likely end up with $100,000 in debt after getting their PhD, that really isn't the typical for somebody getting a bachelor's degree, right? So we're talking about $25,000, $29,000 as a typical level of student debt. And then when you're looking at the, the income premium across a lifetime, that seems to actually be a much more reasonable calculus to make. Isn't the real issue that there are many students who take on that debt but then don't have a degree because they don't graduate and therefore don't have the additional earning power? Well, there's, there are two issues there. Let's mm -hmm. let me deal with yours and then yeah. the other. Um, not finishing is unacceptable. And I think one of the issues, again, that we need, we as a society need to grapple with is, you know, the numbers writ large and, and granted that institutions vary from, you know, a small regional four year to a large state university. But basically what we're looking at is 40% is of our students who started a four-year institution finish in six years. Personally, as a citizen, that's unacceptable. And it's particularly unacceptable as a society if that's not the fault of the student. You know, we all know that, that you know, to each individuals can make mistakes and can waste time and money, but this is not an issue that I think most of us would say, well, the vast majority of students are just, you know, sitting back and, and not sure. paying attention. So we need to make a better case. That's the other reason 
I wrote this book, we in higher education need to make a better case about the critical importance of higher education. But it's hard to do that with a number like 40% only get a degree in six years. I mean, it's not four years. When I, you know, I'm an old guy, but when I went to college in the 70s, nobody said to me, well, Bill, you're gonna graduate in six years. It was a four-year degree. I mean, we do call it a four-year degree. Mm -hmm. So, and again, there are always exceptions that, you know, um, somebody takes, only can work half time because they're married or what have you. And let me just off raise the other question. And that's, you said that it's a, it's relatively a good deal over a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And it is true, you know, basically as of today, if, if, and these comparisons are always difficult, but if a person graduates from high school A and gets a four-year degree and his or her friend graduates and goes straight to work, they're going to make about a million and gets the degree. It's going to make about a million dollars. Yep. Yep. That's, that's pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. And we don't say to that person, well, therefore, you're going to have to pay for health care. Or therefore, when you go to the library, you have to pay for the library. Or if your house catches on fire, you have to pay for the fire truck to come. That's not the way we think about it. We think of it as a public good that everybody, regardless, gets it. Now, again, we can talk about, you know, well, we can't afford it or something like that. But first we have to say, what do we want as a society? And then where do we go from there? And how would you engage in that discussion differently? Because that that discussion, that discourse has been happening um, for quite a while, right? Uh, in terms of at least raising those questions about how we feel about higher ed as a public good. And quite frankly, the narrative has not been uh, positive, uh, at least in the last uh, four or five, six years. Um, so how would you productively engage in that discussion to move us forward? Let's look at two recent occurrences that have happened in society in the United mm -hmm. States. One is the Trump administration and the challenges that that administration presented to us. And the other is the pandemic. Now, we can look at individuals, right? And we, we've seen that applications to medical school are way up yes. and, and they're attributing that to Dr. Fauci. Mm -hmm. that, you know, people have saw him and went, that's what I want to be. And more power to him. I think that's great. If you think back to 9-11, after 9-11, I think as a society, we really looked on firemen or firemen and women as heroes. That sure. as, as a group, boy, they were admirable. Now let's think about higher education during Trump and the pandemic. And I don't think we necessarily dipped in society's views. But I don't think we went up anyway. Right. I think people would say in terms of the pandemic, maybe there are some towns that are annoyed or bothered that, you know, there's, there's research or data coming out that's saying that those institutions that brought kids back to campus, that, that the town itself had a, had a rise in, in infection. But I think by and large, if, if you were to say to, to the citizen, 
What's your impression of, of uh, higher education given the pandemic? They'd go, I don't know, what do you, what do you say? I don't, I don't have an impression. I think that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a mistake with regard to the Trump administration. I think that, that, um, that higher education as a unit should have been much more aggressive in pressing the case about the importance of any number of issues that touch on higher education directly. Okay, I, you know, you and I have spoken offline and, and there's a valid question to ask, where do you draw the line? Mm-hmm. I don't think that, that um, you know, whether or not California should get another professional football team is something that, that a university should necessarily weigh in on. Sure. But if we look back over the last four years, right out of the gate, the Trump administration put in his, his quote unquote, Muslim ban. Mm-hmm. Well, again, that not only impacted universities and the xenophobia that went with that, but it's something that is inherently against the notion of what higher education is about. And that's the thing is that, you know, until the last 10, 15, 20 years, if you ask society, citizens, what's your impression of higher education? Even if they didn't go to college, you know, even if their kids didn't go to college, it was relatively positive. It was a thought that this is something that's worth investing in. And the thing that I find, you know, I've traveled a lot. And the thing that I find abroad is that there's still a great deal of admiration for American higher education. You know, I I was thinking this morning that I was in Taiwan not so long ago and I was talking to the Minister of Education and he laughed and he said, you know, we don't buy your cars, but we sure do like your education, your higher education. What an interesting comment. (laughs) And, and, you know, again, it's not that I I don't want to sell higher education as a product, but what he was saying is something that I think we need to make the case much more vociferously than we're doing today mm-hmm. about the value and benefit of higher education. You know, and if I may, it, it's not simply about jobs or it's not only about jobs. Well, so let's touch on that because one of the themes across the 49 challenges, and, and that's a lot of challenges uh, that you explore, is this premise that perhaps universities have become too focused on career preparation um, versus preparing a curious and engaged citizenry. So can you share a little bit more, elaborate a bit more on what you, um, why you think that is and what you would propose as an alternative? It's not an alternative. I mean, it's certainly true that we need to uh, enable students who go to college to gain some type of employment. And, and, And again, we're talking about a system that has 4,000 institutions. So I also acknowledge that, you know, there's a significant difference if you've got someone who's 25 and goes to a community college and wants to become a tradesperson and somebody who's 18 and goes to... USC. Yeah, USC or Stony. (laughs) Right. Um, But again, you know, most of us, not all, but most of us, I think can make the case that in the last four years, democracy has been at risk in this country. And I think when you look at different organizations, 
Some held up better than others. I think that we all, you know, it seems from both sides of the aisle, we will acknowledge that Congress is not working the way we want it to. Mm -hmm. And there are certainly scurrilous um, public media outlets out there now. But I also think that the fifth estate, that places like the New York Times tried to step up their game and tried to point out what's truth and what's fiction. Well, can you think of another organization that its reason of being is trying to delineate the difference between truth and fiction? I mean, to me, this is so inherent about what academic life is about, that why would we not have been central to the discussion and argument in the last four years and going forward? You know, I worry when I read now, uh, you know, about, I don't know, the, the phrase deep fakes. And mm-hmm. deep, deep fakes are the ability, and it's not, the problem is it's not just Russians, the ability to put out information that appears true and it's not, you know, so that, and we could get to the point where someone would not like the conversation we are having and totally change your dialogue and my dialogue, and we wouldn't be able to delineate the differences. Today, you can still do that. Right. Well, again, these type of things, not only in terms of research, trying to figure out how do you tell truth from fact or fiction, but it's central to what academic life is about. And that's what I want, you know, I want us to be more us higher education, to be more engaged in these conversations. I think at times we avoid them and we avoid them for largely for two reasons, I think. One, college presidents and boards have grown more cautious in speaking up um, and they know that they are dependent, public institutions in particular are dependent on public dollars. Mm-hmm. They don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. And I think we do that at risk. And I think we are also concerned on campus that if we have these kind of conversations, they are difficult. And students of one persuasion or another are going to to kick back and say, don't do that. Well, you know, that students are going to be upset, I think is absolutely fine. What we need to do though, is to say, look, we modeled the way to have difficult conversations. Again, you know, what I wish is looking back in the last four years, I wish that the President Biden would have been able to say in his inauguration, we as a society need to be able to have difficult conversations just as they have been having on college campuses for the last four years, where people disagree with one another, but at the end of the day, they're able to talk with one another. Yes. But you'll notice he didn't say that. He didn't even mention higher education. But, You still uh, shared with me uh, when we came on that um, you were feeling optimistic. So let's touch on that. Um, You know, the Biden administration does have quite a bit of legislation that they are wanting to put through that will impact 
uh, higher education, potentially, um, mm -hmm. if it gets through. Um, what makes you optimistic in this moment for higher education? Um, uh, and being optimistic, I'm not the opposite. I'm not, you know, there are folks like Clayton Christensen and others today. We have always had Jeremiah's that say, says the end is near. Mm -hmm. And when thoughtful people say the end is near, it makes everybody nervous. And I think we need to take a breath and say, 4,000 institutions shutting down in the next 10 years it is not going to happen. Right. Now, yes, we are going to see some institutions close. But why am I optimistic? Well, I think we are learning things from the pandemic. One of them is, um, you know, I live in Los Angeles and uh, my doctor and I, or my the different doctors I've seen and I, tele, have tele-appointments, just like we're doing right now on Zoom. Right. I think that's fantastic. I would much rather sit in my office drinking a cup of coffee rather than have to race across town in LA traffic, sit in his office for 45 minutes because he's never on time, <laughs> Completely. you know, and then drive home. So I really see that as, as we've learned something and I don't see us going back to that. Mm -hmm. When you look at restaurants, I think it's tragic that a lot of restaurants are gonna go out of business, but I also think it's pretty self-evident that people like to go to restaurants and we're gonna see restaurants exist. Well, then think about higher education. I mean, you know, the joke about faculty is that they can never change. And lo and behold, as a, as a professoriate, everybody changed within two weeks. They went from teaching courses in person to online. It was pretty remarkable, actually. It was, it was remarkable. And, I, and again, it's something that we should celebrate and honor. Yes. But the other part of it that I find amazing is Lo and behold, one of the things we found out is that students actually like classes, that they do want to be in, in class. Yes. Now, again, we can change things. It's not every person who teaches the greatest lecture every single time. <laughs> but I think a takeaway is to say these places are places where people do like to congregate. Mm -hmm. And we need to reconfigure them. You know, again, I think... One thing in terms of cost savings for our colleges and universities is something else we learned is that probably the manner in which our workforce goes to work needs to be rethought dramatically. You know, in my center, my secretary lives about an hour and a half away. Oh. And again, fighting traffic in Los Angeles is horrible. Yes, it is. She's been fantastic. And it would be strange, I think, for the university to say, well, the pandemic is over. Everybody needs to come back just the way it was. So we're going to have, an, have some empty buildings if we reconfigure things thoughtfully. And those buildings are worth something in terms of how do we rent them out and who do we make them available to. So it, it's just, I think as a social organization, one, it's, it's been proven during this pandemic that people like universities, those who use them, students and, and faculty and staff. 
The other is the case that I'm, I'm trying to make is that how essential they are for uh, the future of a democracy. Mm -hmm. And to do that, it's hard for me to envision that all we're doing is online classes in a for-profit mode. Um, and, and we as a society will benefit from that. We won't. Now for some students though, um, the online environment probably does make sense because they have life circumstances that makes that, you know, what, what is um, flexible and works for them. Um, because your secretary, for example, is, is more time poor in an in-person right. world, right? So, so it could be that this has given us an opportunity to understand across modalities and across different um, hybrid situations that we have some flexibility to meet our students where they need to be met. I, th I think in particular, Sally, it's, it's not an either or. You're absolutely right that there are some students who for one reason or another, in another life I used to work uh, on a tribal reservation. Uh, you know, the distances are remarkably yes. fast. So yes. the thought that we had to have students drive three hours for one mm -hmm. class because it was a three hour class and then drive home three hours is right. you're not going to succeed that way. So for some students, that's absolutely true. But the real opportunity I think we have now is that although the bulk of students classes can occur online, let me come back to that point of 40% of our students are graduating in six years. Yes. How can we change that? Part of the way we change that is the way we think about online learning the way we think about watching TV or watching shows. Is, is it possible that a student can take something online that is valid and reliable and not just something to get credits and dollars for us, but it's worthwhile? Yes. And the truth is absolutely, absolutely we can do that. I, I wanna see the opposite actually, rather than 40% graduate in six years, I wanna see 40% graduate in three years. Yes. And I think we can do that in a positive way. I think this is a great time if all of us come together and try to figure out how can we reconfigure the university and make it vital for the 21st century. So let's talk about the role of faculty um, in that endeavor, uh, because certainly shared governance is um, something that is held up as, well, important to the culture of the, the institution, often um, a slowing mechanism to bold change. Um, and yet it's very clear in your writing that you feel that faculty and tenure and faculty involvement in the decision-making is critical to a solution that's going to be abiding and successful. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, let's recognize first off and this is really to my, my friends on the faculty, that there's not a plot, a coordinated plot out to eliminate tenure. It's, you know, it, that's not the way a system of 4,000 institutions work. It's not right. that every president right. gets on some secret Zoom call and says, <laughs> don't hire tenure track faculty. It's actually the opposite. It's you have deans in colleges at institutions and they're trying to make their, their budget, balance their budget, and they go, I can't afford this, what do I do? That's exactly right. And the, and the easy solution is, well, we, um, we're not gonna hire 
the replacement for Bill Tierney and we'll save that line and we'll put the money somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the point is you can cut off fat and then you're hitting bone mm-hmm. that we have been seeing a decrease in tenure track faculty across the board for 20 years. I think that's harmful and we need to think about ways to, to reconstruct that. And you will, you're going to ask, well, how do we do that? How do we pay for that? Let's recognize that tenure is a structure, but how we define that structure is up to the faculty and administration. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is, um, this is, you know, it changes in different places, but at, I would think top tier four-year universities, semester driven, we would probably say that most faculty have a two-two teaching load, two courses in the fall, two courses in the spring. And that's what I got. And it that's the way that I think about it. And nothing's gonna change that. Well, we can change that. I mean, there's no there's no reason that we can't change that. Um, it it takes the will of the administration and faculty to come together and talk about changing things in a particular way. You know, we know that the life career of a faculty member changes over time. Hope, you know, you would hope that I'm a different person today other than when I started out when I was 30, other than have less hair. (laughs) But I'm not sure that all faculty are as productive in every single domain Um, throughout their career. So why is it that we can't create broad strokes and say, and honest conversations with individuals and say, look, Sally, you came here as a 2-2 faculty member, but if you look at your research productivity over the last couple of years, over the last two years, it's dropped dramatically. Why Mm -hmm. Why don't we make it better for you and better for us in terms of what you're going to do to get promoted and a raise, if there are such things as raises ever again, um, and you'll teach six classes a year. Why do we do that? We do that because tenure allows faculty and the institution to speak out, to, to raise difficult questions and speak on difficult topics across the board, inside and outside the university. If I'm at a for-profit institution where there is no such thing as tenure, I can be dismissed tomorrow. And really what a for-profit institution is saying is your your voice is not important to us. Well, we can't have it both ways in in our public and private nonprofit institutions. We can't say your voice is important to us. We just don't have that structure that enables you to be protected with that voice. Great, thank you. Lots of thought-provoking ideas and suggestions. Um, that is Get Real, 49 Challenges Confronting Higher Education. We just, we didn't even scratch the surface of the many topics that you uh, address in this really intriguing book. So thank you very much, Dr. Tierney. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Please join us next week when we talk about a new fellowship program that's helping to fill the void 
caused by shrinking university investment in things like professional development for faculty. Until then, thanks again for listening to Office Hours with EAB.